chapter and verse by verse within the chapter as we go through books. We are in the gospel of Luke. Our text this morning, Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. It was a long night. Our topic is Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. The title of our message is SWAT training. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 47. And while Jesus was still speaking, behold, a multitude and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Let's pray together. Lord, you know, we have a sincere respect and reverence for your word. We love to open it and read it publicly, privately. Every part of it, every word of it, Lord, which was God breathed. And there's always something really extra special about your life as it's revealed in the Gospels. And especially your very words, the words spoken from your lips. We stand in awe of them today. We desire to understand them in a way that makes sense for what we're going through, for what we need to know here in our situation. I pray, Lord, that by the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, whom you have sent into the hearts of believers, into the world, that we would hear that our ears would be open, that we would understand what you want us to understand. Regardless, my words, that your word would be rich and refreshing and powerful in the lives of each person represented here. The believers would be strengthened in their faith. And if there is anyone or anybody, Lord, any group of people even, that don't know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would Come to the reality, Lord, of knowing that you have risen from the dead, that you're alive forevermore, and that you're offering them the forgiveness of sins, the only way that they can have eternal life, and that they would be touched by your good news, that though they are sinners, you are their Savior. Do all this and more. You promise to do abundantly beyond all we ask and think, and we pray that you would. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. You might not know Michael Mitchell, but he entered Randall's Firearms in Seminole, Florida, and he tried to steal a gun. Randy McKenzie, the owner of Randall's Firearms in Seminole, Florida, said that Mitchell pulled out a box cutter. He broke the glass on a couple of display cases demanding a gun. McKenzie pointed his gun at Mitchell and ordered him to lie on the ground. Mitchell fled out the store's back door before police arrived. Mitchell was later arrested in a parking lot. He was held on $125,000 bond, charges of attempted robbery, aggregated assault, uh, and criminal mischief, officials said. The moral of this story, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Seriously, if you are in a fight, 
You want the appropriate superior weapons that you are properly trained to use. When you become a Christian, you find yourself in a fight. We commonly refer to it as spiritual warfare. We have spiritual enemies who employ sinister techniques to defeat us. The most well-known passage is found in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, where you are told to beware of the wiles, the treachery or the trickery of the devil, because, and I quote, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. How can you fight the devil? Not with any conventional weapons and tactics. You need spiritual weapons and tactics, what we are calling SWAT training. Jesus had his SWAT team in place when their enemies came against them in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples, unfortunately, tried to fight using the wrong weapons and tactics, and they were immediately defeated. Jesus remained in control, though he was arrested. Though he would be crucified, he won the spiritual warfare by utilizing the appropriate superior weapons. We'll organize our training around two points. Number one, you are surrounded by spiritual warfare and treachery. Number two, you are supplied with spiritual weapons and tactics. First of all, in verses 47 through 50, you are surrounded by spiritual warfare and treachery. Spiritual warfare is always an interesting topic among Christians. It's a hot button topic. People love to discuss it and hear about it. We normally go to extremes. We think of the most extreme examples like cases of demonic possession that require exorcism. Lately it has become popular to engage in a technique known as spiritual mapping. According to this, you map an area by researching it to see what kinds of evil practices have occurred there historically. The idea behind it is that you must identify the spiritual strongholds in each home and in each neighborhood to be able to properly pray against them and tear them down. Certain key questions must be asked and answered. For example, how and why did your city begin? Who were the founders and what were their intentions and spiritual condition? What presently characterizes the city or what is it known for? The latest demographic study of the city should be analyzed. The history of race relations must be studied along with any traumatic events the city has experienced like earthquakes or floods or fires. Only then, the teaching goes, can the demonic spirit or spirits in control of the city be properly identified and then their power be broken. It's a completely bogus technique with no biblical basis whatsoever. While we are establishing neighborhood watch for demons, the devil and his pals are at work in far more subtle and therefore treacherous ways. You see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's true Satan had entered Judas Iscariot. And it's true Jesus called the episode the hour of the power of darkness. But the attack itself came in a way that was totally unexpected by the disciples. When Judas, Jesus' own friend, came and betrayed him with a kiss. And so let's pick up the story again in verse 47. While he was still speaking to his disciples, behold, a multitude... And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, 
went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. The disciples with Jesus had no idea, no indication that Judas was the traitor. He had been one of them. He was trusted with their treasury. Even after Jesus had pointed him out at dinner and Judas had left to get the arresting authorities, the disciples thought he was just going out to get additional supplies. A kiss was the common form of greeting, kiss on each cheek and a hug. The disciples surrounding Jesus would have thought Judas had returned just in time to help them in their fight against this multitude that had found them. You don't need to be demon possessed to be a tool of Satan. There's a verse in second Timothy. It describes unbelievers as caught in the snare of the devil. It says that they are, and I quote, taken captive by him, the devil at his will. They're not possessed by the devil. But they are influenced by him to make life difficult for Christians. And so as far as a Christian worldview, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian, then you are under the influence taken captive by the devil. Not possessed, maybe not even oppressed, just in his service in the sense that you are living life in the flesh that you are living according to worldly principles, that he is able to influence you against Christians when and where he sees fit. Let's say you're having trouble at work. Very common, very common situation. Uh, Probably everybody's had some kind of problem at work. And let's say you're the employee or you're the subordinate, you're having trouble with your boss or your commanding officer or whoever it would be in that situation. Let's just say your boss is a jerk. Now, you would never say that. Well, maybe you would. (laughs) Have you considered that you are involved in a spiritual skirmish? If you recognize it as spiritual, then you will want to proceed spiritually. This is so important. And, and, and I think most people would say, well, of course, it's a spiritual battle because I'm a Christian. But it's more than that. It's not just that you're in a spiritual battle. It's that you therefore must fight it with spiritual weapons. And so if you recognize it as spiritual and want to proceed spiritually, you might not put in for a transfer. You might not start looking for another job. You might not file a grievance. You might not go over your boss's head to the next authority. You might suddenly become overwhelmed with compassion for that person, realizing that he or she needs to see the love of Jesus Christ in you and through you in order to come to repentance and be saved. You might begin to utilize spiritual supplies at your disposal to deal with the attack rather than the normal channels that anyone would go through. Now, I want to just say this as a qualifier one time. I'm not saying that you can never change jobs. I'm not saying that you can't put in for transfers. I'm not saying you can't file grievances. I'm not saying you can't follow the proper chain of command. All of that is available to you. I just want you to consider if that is really the level on which you want to fight this battle. If the Lord reveals to you that this is a spiritual warfare, you may want to consider some spiritual weaponry before you jump in with the normal weapons that any person would use in your situation. 
And there's a lot of spiritual supply at your disposal. This would apply at home. This would apply at school. This would apply even in the church, anywhere you find yourself. The conflicts you experience there are spiritual in nature. So you need spiritual weapons and tactics to defeat them. Jesus put the Judas kiss in its proper context when he said in verse 48, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? I love the way Jesus asks penetrating questions, questions that demand self-examination and reflection. To me, this is a clear announcement to all of the disciples that Judas was indeed the traitor. There was also, though, a tenderness, I believe, in Jesus' words. It was a question that if answered from the heart, if exposed from the heart, could have brought Judas to repentance and faith. Even as Jesus was about to be arrested, leading to a violent evening and his death on the cross, he was expressing love for his wayward disciple. There was a battle going on all around the disciples And as we've indicated, obviously, it's a spiritual battle. And the question now is, how would they fight this battle? After being with Jesus three and a half years, after being instructed right in the garden, just immediately before this, now the war was upon them. Now they were surrounded by the enemy. How would they respond? Verse 49, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Their very first inclination was to strike out and strike back in a manner similar to their attackers here was a multitude with swords and clubs let's pull out our swords and fight them it examples for us that we almost always immediately want to fight back when you find yourself in some kind of a conflict at work at home in school wherever you are there is a tendency to fight back because of our flesh because of the body that we're still in and the way we were brought up and the way we were trained and so we want to fight back we demand our rights and we defend ourselves now there are times when god will allow us to use means that are at our disposal but we have to have a attitude check and make sure we're doing it with the right motive let me give you a couple of examples from the life of the apostle paul The Apostle Paul only had on his heart and on his mind the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what effect his life would have on the lives of others, bringing them to know Christ. And as a result, when he demanded his rights, he did it in the context of furthering the gospel, not just demanding his rights. So here he is in Philippi, arrested, beaten, thrown in jail, literally held in stocks. It's the episode where they're singing at midnight and there's an earthquake and the jail cells break open and Paul convinces all the prisoners not to run. They go to the jailer's house. They lead he and his household to faith in Jesus Christ, comes back and goes to jail because he doesn't want the jailer to get in trouble. Next morning, the city officials come to Paul, open the jail cell thinking he's learned his lesson You Jews can't come into our town and start talking about this weird Jesus doctrine. You're free to go. Paul, I'm sure, with real dramatic flair. I mean, just just getting ready to go and just at the last minute. Oh, excuse me. Kind of a Columbo-esque moment, you know. 
one more thing. Slipped my mind. And he had eye trouble, too, you know, so it could have. Did I mention to you guys, did I tell you I was a Roman citizen? Oh, man. Time out. Back up. Stop the presses. You can't treat a Roman citizen that way. You know, in our society, we have rights. They had rights in the Roman world as well. You could not arrest a Roman citizen, beat him and throw him in jail without charging him, without some kind of a a due process of law. These guys were in so much trouble. They, they, I mean, this was it for these guys. Their lives were over as they had ever known them before. What did Paul do? Did he say, I want your badge number because I'm taking this to the authorities. Your life is over. I've got you right where I want you. No, he, he just mentioned that he was a Roman citizen. He knew that he was being kicked out of the city, not by them, but by God. He was moving on. But he was going to leave a little fledgling group of Christians there. And this moment, this terror that he struck into the hearts of those people, those authorities, would give that group an opportunity to flourish. Hey, let's just leave these guys alone. We're in enough trouble potentially already. And Paul went his way. Another time, Paul was arrested and uh, he said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar, which was the right of any Roman citizen. Now, very few people appeal to Caesar because Caesar didn't want to talk to you. (laughs) If you appeal to Caesar and he was having a bad day, you were just dead. And, and, And yet it was the right of any Roman citizen. Paul didn't appeal to Caesar because he felt his rights were being infringed upon or impinged upon. It was a way to get him to Rome because he wanted to go to Rome. It was his heart's desire to get to Rome. And along the way, he preached to civil magistrates in every city. He had a phenomenal ministry while he was in chains on his way to Rome. And then tradition tells us in Rome, he preached to Caesar Nero. And I'll bet he didn't have anything to say at all about his mistreatment as a Roman citizen, but about Nero's need for Christ. To become a citizen of heaven. Can, I wish that was recorded. I wish Paul's words to Nero were recorded. They must have been rich. Full of the Holy Spirit. And so if you want to demand your rights. If you want to take it to the next level. Are you doing it for the sake of Jesus Christ? Or just because you can. Just because you can defend yourself. Just because you have that right. It's a very interesting self-reflection. Recognizing you are in a spiritual battle is not enough. You must return fire with spiritual weaponry. One of the disciples did not understand this. Actually, none of them did, but one of them didn't even wait for the Lord to answer. Verse 50, one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, the Gospel of John tells us that this disciple was Peter. Before you laugh, let's not criticize Peter. We have a rule here at Calvary Chapel of Hanford. We do not criticize the Apostle Peter. He's just like us. We're just like him. Uh, There's a sense in which I just don't want to meet up with him in heaven. (laughs) Peter was a big, burly fisherman. He he could bring in hundreds of pounds of fish, a net that would take several men. Peter could just pull that thing in. (sighs) He was a big man. And I don't want to meet up with him. I don't want to have to talk to him for like a thousand years about every time I brought up his name and said, oh, yeah, Peter, foot in mouth. Uh, you know, 
Just leave Peter alone. I don't want to criticize Peter. Peter illustrates our normal, natural response in a spiritual attack. We counterattack with the wrong weapons and tactics. Think of the situation these guys were in. They were 12 men, 11 really, since Judas was a traitor. They had two swords among them, and they were facing an armed multitude, trained men who had come with the authority of the religious leaders. It was like taking a knife to a gunfight. There was no way that they were going to win a sword fight against these guys. It shows you how foolish it is to engage your enemies on their terms. They always have superior numbers and earthly advantage. As soon as you fight back on the level of the world, you have been defeated. You're already defeated. In the midst of all this, there was Jesus. Although he would most definitely be arrested, he defeated his enemies every step of the way. So can we. And so let's look in verses 51 through 53. You are supplied with spiritual weapons and tactics. Jesus gave them instruction and he provided an example of how to fight a spiritual battle. Now, we looked at some of his instruction in our last study in Luke a couple of weeks ago. In verses 40 and 46, just before the brunt of the attack came, Jesus told them to be men who were praying. Jesus knew the attack was coming. His solution wasn't to relocate to a more secluded spot. He didn't say to his disciples, hey, guys, I've got it on good authority from the Holy Spirit that it's inside information that that a multitude, a mob is coming to arrest me. So rather than go to the Garden of Gethsemane, we'll set up like a. Uh, a bunch of pillows in the garden that look like men and then we'll go over here to another spot. No, he didn't relocate. It was to meet the onslaught head on, but to be prepared for it through prayer. You and I don't know where the attack will come from or when. And I know why. You know why? Because you would find a more secluded spot. (laughs) If the Lord came to you and he said, Gene, tomorrow morning, you're going to be driving down Dowdy and one of these crazy high school kids is going to just blow the red light at uh, Grangeville and just total out your car and uh, knock you silly. I just stay home all day. Thanks, Lord. Hey, nice heads up there. Whatever it is, if you knew the trial was coming specifically, you would do something. And so Jesus doesn't necessarily want us to relocate, to avoid or avert the attack. If we stay in prayer, we will be prepared when trouble comes. So we would put the habit of prayer right on the top of our list of spiritual weapons and tactics. One other observation from the verses we've just studied this morning. The disciples asked the Lord what they should do, but then... Peter acted before they were answered. And that teaches us that waiting is a very important weapon in our arsenal. We must wait on the Lord for his direction and instruction. Now, most people don't like to wait for most things. Uh, You know, standing in line, traffic, big topic of conversation, you know, as as our bus was heading over the grapevine to L.A. is, what's the traffic going to be like? I hope we don't get stuck in traffic. I'm I'm doing it too, of course, you know, because it's like traffic. Oh, traffic is like an evil. It's like a great evil that stands in the way of progress. 
I mean, you know what it is? We just don't like to wait. Have you ever calculated? I don't have the, the figures and I'm bad with numbers, but you know, if you drive like 10 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour faster than you're supposed to, you only get to where you're going like five minutes sooner, but you get there faster as far as you're concerned. As long as there's movement, the minute you're behind, I got to get out of this lane. I got to get onto another free. Are there any surface streets I could take? You know, you do MapQuest. Those of you are online, you're trying to figure out how to get somewhere. Yahoo Maps or MapQuest.com. And up in the top, they always say, do you prefer surface streets? You know, it's kind of fun sometimes you're going like at Los Angeles. Yeah, I want to take all surface streets because at least I'm moving. And we just don't like to wait. Spiritually, we don't like to wait. So we shoot up these quick prayers. Lord, what do you want me to do? And over here, we're reaching for whatever our sword is. We're, we're already strategizing how we can get out of the trial that we're in before the Lord ever answers us. And so we need to learn to wait on the Lord. Now, the next thing Jesus did was to cover for Peter's mistake. Verse 51, but Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now, this phrase, permit even this, according to scholars, has at least two possible meanings. That's one of those scholars now. Jesus could be talking to his disciples, telling them to permit his arrest. In other words, he could be looking at the disciples saying, guys, let them arrest me. Possible, as far as the grammar, improbable. Guys, just go ahead. I know you could wipe out all these guys with your swordsmanship, you know, and you've got those two swords and your kung fu moves, but let them arrest. There was little hope that these guys had of defending Jesus. And so he's probably not talking to them. He's probably talking to the mob, telling them, wait. Now, this is fantastic. Here they've come to arrest Jesus. Armed crowd. This isn't just a rabble. I mean, this isn't just a bunch of weird. This, these are soldiers. These are officials. They have weapons. They're trained to be like the police coming to your door with, with, you know, their SWAT vests and everything on. They're ready to go. And then Peter engages them. I mean, it's like, OK, it's on. He cuts off the servant's ear. These guys are ready. They're they're pulling their weapons. They're getting in position. You got to think that it hurts to cut off an ear. I mean, this guy, he's not just standing there thinking, oh, what used to be here? He's screaming, writhing in pain, his ear somewhere on the ground. Blood is spurting out of his, the side of his. I mean, this is a big thing going on. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks at the multitude and he says, permit even this. And everyone stops what they're doing. No one moves because of the power of his command. And whether he has to reach down or I don't know, maybe somebody gave it to him. Who knows? He gets the ear and and this guy writhing in pain, screaming in pain. He puts the guy's ear back on. No blood, no sewing, no pain. Takes care of that whole situation while everybody is kind of in a suspended state, mentally at least. Like, And then he says, okay, let's go on with the arrest. It's phenomenal. It's fantastic. Jesus is in control of this situation. The servant is identified in the Gospel of John as a guy named Malchus. And I just think that's cool for him. I mean, we don't need to know that, but John thought it was important. And maybe he had a relationship with Malchus and he says, hey, I'll get you into the Bible. (laughs) 
It's who you know, no matter what, you know. So <laughs> Jesus healed his ear. And that tells us at least two things about our tactics in spiritual warfare. Number one, if you blow it, when you blow it and you counterattack on the level of your enemies, Jesus can step in and cover for you and you can recover and begin to move forward from that point of recovery. Second, even though you are being attacked and you're a soldier in a battle, you are to think of yourself as a medic or a corpsman who can bring healing to those who have come against you. This is kind of interesting to me. I want to dwell on this for just a moment. Because normally, and there's nothing wrong with this, when we think about spiritual warfare, and we get from Ephesians chapter 6, Paul borrows the analogy of the Roman soldier, you know, with his helmet and his sword and his breastplate and his feet shod with these boots that had, you know, nails coming out of them, and then this loincloth they wore. Which, but anyway, uh, but they were fierce. I mean, these were fierce guys. We don't think that there are other types of soldiers. I had the privilege this past week, I was at the Marine Corps ball. They asked me to, to do the invocation. It was a real joy for me and, and, and a really neat time. And, and, and uh, you know, I'm not really military. I didn't, I'm not from a military background or anything. So I'm asking about the different uniforms, all kinds of different uniforms and what they're for. And it's the same idea. There's, there's many different functions. And what Jesus is telling you is that a lot of times in spiritual warfare, you're not the Roman soldier with your sword cutting people off. You're a corpsman, you're a medic, and you're helping your enemy. You're healing your enemy. This is a very different look at spiritual warfare than we sometimes have. And so back to your boss or wherever it is that you're having this problem, you're to extend some kind of healing to that individual. And when you sit here, as I do this morning, and think, oh, I can't do that, <laughs> hallelujah, now we're getting somewhere. Of course you can't do that. You don't want to, and when you want to, you can't. But God can do it through you, and that's where the gospel becomes real in a person's life, your life and their life. And this is very powerful stuff. Now, Jesus now faced his enemies. He said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? Jesus, of course, was not a robber. Their assault and arrest was not justified on any level. It reminds us to live in a manner pleasing to God so that when we are attacked, our enemies have nothing with which to accuse us. Now, no one is perfect. All of us make mistakes, but we can nevertheless strive to live lives that are above reproach. It will take the edge away from our attackers. You want to be attacked for the sake of the gospel. And so, you know, if you come into my office and say, I'm, I'm hey, I got Man, I was at the message yesterday, and this is exactly what's happening to me. I'm in a spiritual warfare with my boss. Well, tell me about it. He's doing this, he's doing that, he's doing that. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, I've been late four days in a row. Late coming back from lunch. I took that extra break. But he's telling me I shouldn't share the gospel. Okay, let's... How about you go to work on time? How about you leave on time? How about you take lunch on time? And, and then if he still wants to attack you, then you might be in a spiritual battle. Otherwise, you're just in a stupid battle. <laughs> you know, some people, uh, this is interesting to me. They've told people have told me this. And if you're here and you've told me this, I apologize ahead of time. I'm going to tell it anyway. But anyway, <laughs> people have told you know, they've had this problem with work. They can't get to work on time. So what happened? Well, my alarm went off late and I was late. And so I told my boss and he got mad at me. Well, your alarm going off late 
is a reason you're late, but it's not an excuse. I mean, do you really think you're going to go and say, hey, my alarm, I don't know what happened, must have had a power shortage, so, I mean, what could I do, really? It's, do you expect your boss to say, I'll buy you a battery-operated alarm, I've got them just for you here, I've been hanging on to it for you. How about I give you a wake-up call? Because it's so important to me that you get here on time, and I understand that it's impossible for you to do that. No, just, you know, there's a responsibility that you and I have to be above reproach and to do what we're supposed to do. And then when you're attacked, then you're attacked for the right reasons. Now, Jesus mentioned their weapons, swords and clubs. It emphasized that he had neither. Even though Peter had wielded a sword, the Lord had overcome Peter's mistake. He would not be brought down to their level. He would not return fire. The disciples found it easier to fight in the flesh than to endure suffering. One author remarked that crusaders are always more numerous than martyrs. Crusaders are easier to find than martyrs. You can always get people to sign up for a crusade. Uh, People shy away from martyrdom. Now, Jesus' refusal to use swords and clubs symbolizes the whole realm of suffering hardship, of patiently enduring your trials, of counting it all joy when you fall into various troubles. He's basically saying, you guys are coming against me with swords and clubs. You have the power to arrest me, and you're going to arrest me because I am not going to meet you on your terms. And so arrest me. It is our unwillingness to suffer that often defeats us in spiritual warfare. We have a natural unwillingness to suffer. I understand that. But when we recoil and don't allow the Lord to give us the grace to suffer, to endure suffering, we're defeated. When Jesus called the Apostle Paul... A lot of people think Paul the greatest living example of what it means to be a Christian. So let's, let's give them that for a moment. If Paul were here, he'd punch me. But I mean, who wants to be called the greatest living example of a Christian? You think I mean, he's, he needs a plaque or something? I mean, it's crazy. But from our point of view, he's a great example of a Christian. When Jesus called him and saved him, he said this of Paul, I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. He didn't say other things he could have said. He didn't say, Paul, I'm going to show you how great miracles you're going to perform in my name. I'm going to show you how great books you're going to write in my name. I'm going to show you millions and millions, maybe a billion people that have been affected by your ministry, both in your lifetime, but throughout human history. And those are all great things. But the thing that the Lord said that was the most honorable, the thing that he wanted to confer upon Paul, that really set him apart as a servant, as a soldier in this spiritual warfare, is if there's one thing I can say about the Apostle Paul as he begins his ministry, is the great suffering he's going to endure for my name's sake. He's going to enter into the fellowship of my suffering, the realm of my suffering, so that I can give him grace that is sufficient for it. And that is the example of what it means to be a Christian. And that's why Paul would go on wherever he went to encourage brand new believers by explaining to them that it is through much tribulation that we enter into the kingdom of God. See, when Paul did altar calls, I mean, I'm sure he said a lot of different things, but he didn't just say, come to Jesus and your life will be all totally made right. Everything will be a blessing to you. 
your crops will come in full, your wife will return to you, your children will call you, you know, God. Uh, you know, he didn't say all of the. He said, guys, congratulations, you become Christians. You're headed for eternity, and it's through much tribulation that you are going to enter into the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I don't know what kind of a message that gives you, but that this is this is the gospel of Jesus Christ in that our Lord suffered and we're going to suffer in the world. You'll have tribulation, Jesus says. But what do you say? Hey, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And we normally think of overcoming the world as everything smoothing out for us. But Jesus overcame the world this night by allowing himself to be arrested being tried illegally, being beaten several times, and being crucified. But on the cross, he won total, final, complete victory over Satan that you and I share in now. And all he says back to us is, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ until I come. It's all going to work out in the end. But in the meantime, it's an endurance. Battles are won or lost in our attitude towards suffering. Now, Jesus again addresses the attackers in verse 53. He says, when I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Let's focus on just two things in, the, uh, in this verse. First of all, Jesus spoke of his daily routine. During that last week, he went to the temple, taught the people all day. Then he would retire to the Mount of Olives, teach his disciples and then he would spend most of his night in prayer with his father. And that was the pattern of his life that last week. And pretty much that was the pattern of his life for three and a half years. And, and, but the thinking here is that you and I should have a daily routine that has something to do with serving others for the Lord. With all the time and all the talent and all the treasures that he has permitted us to be supplied with. And, and so, uh, you know... It's not that you have to go into the ministry. You are in the ministry. You're just in the ministry where you are right now, in your job, at your school, in your home. And there needs to be a, a kind of daily understanding that I am to serve all these people that are around me. In order to do that, I better be spending time with my father. And I better be around some other disciples, getting discipled and discipling. And then I better be serving them. And that's my daily routine. And if I move to another job, another school, if I get married, if whatever it is I do, move out of the house, then I have to establish whatever I establish that God wants me to do. It follows this same pattern of spending time with the Lord, spending time with the Lord's people and serving others who don't know the Lord. Second, there's a wealth of teaching in Jesus words. This is your hour and the power of darkness. The word hour means to us. That everything that was happening was by God's divine permission. Before the world was ever created, he had set in time a particular hour when the power of darkness would come against Jesus, take him off, and be crucified. You know, we, it's like us. We ask, well, what time is something going to start? What time do you leave for the men's conference? We leave at 6 p.m. What time does it start in the morning? It starts at 7.30. What time do we need to be? And there's an hour. We set a time for it. When is it over? And so it has a certain time, certain hour, beginning and an end. And Jesus is reminding us that the power of darkness has a certain time to work. It's a set beginning. It's a set end. And we can look at it in the broad sense, in the world as far as the hour of the power of darkness. Or we can look at it in our own lives where it makes more sense. 
We go through various trials. Most of us have a fairly normal life. You go through various trials and they start and they end. Uh, and, and they have a clear beginning and they have a clear end. And we, the, the idea here is that God knew the beginning. He knows the end. I just need to endure and draw from his spiritual supply. Some of us, some of you, the hour of your trial is perhaps your whole life or most of it. That's certainly true for most people in the world. But even at that, it's a very small hour compared to the eternity that we're going to spend with Jesus Christ being rewarded and refreshed for that hour in which we were submitted to God. And so when you are attacked, it is always by divine permission. You've not been abandoned. God has not left his throne. It's all for your good. It's for his glory. He supplies you with grace that is sufficient for anything you are called upon to endure. Evil is always fixed within boundaries that God sets. We don't like the boundaries. We never like the boundaries. We don't even like them to start. But God sets boundaries and we can know they are there. We can draw spiritual nourishment from the confidence of knowing that God remains in control. It's clear that Jesus won this opening skirmish, even though he's arrested. As we continue in the gospel, you know the story. He's going to be mocked, beaten, tried, and crucified. Each time he wins every battle, even though outwardly his situation declines. His death on the cross was the ultimate victory over the power of darkness. It absolutely sealed the defeat and doom of Satan and his followers. And then he rose from the dead Announcing his victory to the entire world, sealing your destiny if you'll come to know Jesus Christ. And, and so when you, when you look at Jesus and you say, yeah, Lord, you're victorious. Thank you, Lord, for your victory. It was a victory in a way that was very odd from our normal way of looking at things. Read the paper the next morning. Jesus arrested, beaten, tried, crucified. How many people were saying Hallelujah. What a victory. Look at the victory of God. Nobody, his disciples didn't even understand. But we, we, we know this. You know that. I mean, you look at Jesus in control. Jump ahead to the cross. Talking from the cross. Ministering to people. Telling them what's going on. And then finally, after it's, you know, the, 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 the darkness is over, he looks up to the Father and he says, ah, okay, I'm, it's over now. I commit my spirit to you. Every step of the way is a victory for Jesus Christ from this point of view. And this is the kind of victory that we want to have. If you're a Christian, you don't need to be overly worried about demons. You don't need to be researching the ownership of your home or your neighborhood or your city to map the demonic principalities and powers at work all around you. I sometimes make light of these things and actually make fun of them because I want to point to them as ridiculous there are people who are involved with this. They get all excited about this. Then they go to work and they file grievances against their boss and they demand their rights and, and they, they act stupid when God wants to bring forth from them this sweet-smelling aroma of the, the humility of Jesus Christ. But at home, I mean, they're, they're opening cupboards carefully because there could be, a, could be a leftover demon in there. Somebody might have had some demon rum in there. Could be the spirit of alcohol in my house. People are really into this. I will know, I'm going to say this publicly. 
I will no longer come to people's houses and pray for their house. I used to do that because people were sincere about it. They said, hey, you know, can you come to my house and pray for and people now they're asking me to come because some of them are into this and they're being drawn into this. It's it's damaging to Christians to get involved in and get their focus on demons, get their focus on these kinds of things when the real battle is happening in the real world in which they live. If you're not yet a Christian, you're taken captive by the devil. You're not possessed. You may not even be oppressed. You might be the nicest person on the block, but you're a captive of the devil You're following the world's philosophy. You're struggling in many areas. You're giving into your flesh and you're you're against Christianity. Jesus said, if somebody's not for us, he's against us. And, and so you need to enter into this victory that Jesus won for you on the cross. Jesus died on the cross because it was the only way that the human race and individual humans within the human race could be forgiven their sin. It was the only way. Either you die for your own sins and get sent to hell because your death is insignificant to God in the sense that it can't cover for your sins. It can't sacrifice for your sins. Or Jesus dies in your place. He substitutes for you and his sacrifice is perfect. And then you come in with him and God justifies you and says, man, you're in Christ. I can receive you into heaven. And those are the only, that's the only possible choice. And so quit being a dupe of the devil and come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these things. We appreciate them deeply, Lord. We, we see your suffering. It was real. It was intense. It was passionate. The things that the Bible says happen to you, happen to you, and in a dimension we can't even understand because they were happening to God and man at the same time. It's, it's incredible. But Lord, I pray that we would see you standing with victory, arrested, victorious, beaten, victorious, tried several times, victorious, crucified, an ultimate victory over the devil, raised from the dead forevermore. We want to walk in that kind of victory. If we have to endure suffering for a moment, give us the awareness of it and the grace to do it. And I pray that we would reach out to our oppressors, that we would reach out to our attackers, that we would reach out in a sense, in this symbolic sense, the way that you healed Malchus's ear, that we would realize that we are reaching their ear in the sense of their hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that the only blood that will benefit is your blood that can cleanse and heal them. Not bloodying them so that we can get out of our trial. Do this and more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.